Jessica. Thanks everyone for having me and thanks for making the effort to come out and good Shabbos to everyone of course. Um, so I'm not a sort of halachic authority on Spanish Jewry, let me say that. Um, I, I've always loved the, the concept at Limud that a lay person can find something interesting, research it and present on it. So as Jessica said, I've, I've presented a few times on various things. Um, and this year I was reading a, you know, a book on general Jewish history and of course the story of the Moranos and of Spanish Jewry came up. I said this is something I really know nothing about because I think in our Ashkenazi oriented uh, sort of Jewish worldview, we don't, uh, that's not a part of history that we, that we really talked about or think about. I suppose you kind of think it was biblical times and then there was this long period and then you landed up in the shtetl and then you escaped the shtetl and then you landed up here. Um, but of course there was a lot going on in between and this is one of the major, major stories of Jewry um, in the Middle Ages. Um, so oh, my name is Daniel, as Jessica said, and uh, the only other thing I'll say is I'm very happy for engagement when I talk from anybody. I think a lot of people know a lot about a lot of things. And if you've got anything to say, please put up your hand. If, I, if I'm on a train of thought, I might ask you to wait a second, but we'll, I'll try and get to everybody who wants to contribute. Uh, so today, if you didn't read the blurb, I'm going to be speaking to you about the conversion primarily of a quarter million Jews. That's two, approximately 250,000 Jews in, in 15th century Spain. Uh, that's the, the late 1400s. Um, which was really a real, it was a spiritual holocaust. I don't think it's ever been sort of uh, equaled in, the, in Jewish history at any other time. Of course there was the holocaust in the Second World War, uh, but in terms of, of people's Judaism being in, in most cases forcibly taken away from them, there's never been an equivalent to this. Um, and at the heart of this disaster, and sometimes forgotten, were these people called the Moranos. Has anybody heard the term Morano before? Um, I actually heard the term Morano too, but didn't really understand it. I can't remember if it was a word, it was like one of those words in Jewish history. So um, some of you perhaps are, are in the same boat as I was. Um, but in, in summary, these were Jews who had officially converted to Christianity at the time of, uh, in, the, in this 15th century, but saw themselves perhaps in a, a big way or a small way as Jews, and in a big way or a small way they practiced Judaism in secret as much as they could. And their story is both tragic and inspiring, and that's why I decided to talk on it. And I'm presenting now. This is the second time, so maybe I'll even have brought it up a level from Limit. Um, so for us just to understand the Moranos, I need to cover some brief history of the time. It's very brief. In fact, this, set, this, this history, when I wrote it out the first time, would have been two talks on its own. So it's extremely brief. Uh, you could go into any of these little small subjects for hours if you really wanted to. I was saying to EA, there was like a 400-page book I plowed through, and I think it's got two paragraphs in there. Um, so anyway, this is the Iberian Peninsula, if you, look, if you think on the map. This is not any slide I'm showing, so uh, it's just so that you can think about, about the map as we talk about it. If you go that way, there's Europe, right? 
the Mediterranean is, is southeast. Okay, Barcelona's over here, Madrid's over here, Cordoba's over here. It's an important city in the story, somewhere in the middle here. It's, it's not very clear on the projector, unfortunately, but what I liked about this map is that it showed the different regions of the time. Quite hard to find a map like that. Um, I found it on Google. All right, so. Jews have been living in the Iberian Peninsula for centuries. In fact, in the story of Jonah in the in the Tanakh, uh, he goes, um, he, he runs away from Hashem to this place called Tarshish, which is actually never it's never explained where that is. But many people say that this that that was this Iberian Peninsula. Oh, and if you didn't if you don't quite know, here's Portugal and Spain. Okay, now two separate countries. But as we'll see at the time, there were lots of different uh, different uh, autonomous states all over the place. Okay, um, very briefly. So under the Romans, uh, there were definitely Jews in, in Spain and the Iberian Peninsula at the time of the Romans, around the 2nd century. Uh, this was under Roman rule. And then in about the 5th century, these Visigoths, they were Germanic people that came in from the north and they, uh, and they took over most of this territory. And Jews lived under then under, under real oppression. In fact, in the 6th century, if you were Jewish in, in what's now Spain, you couldn't even say you were Jewish. They didn't necessarily forcibly convert, convert you, but publicly there was no such thing as being a Jew. Um, and that was over a hundred years, and sometimes you also lose track. You lose perspective of time when you're studying history over a long period, but for over a hundred years you couldn't say you were a Jew in Spain around the 6th century. Not so important to our direct story, but you can, you can see, actually you'll see what an amazing recovery Jews had uh, very shortly. Okay, so now it's the 8th century, which is the 710s, and for about 70 or 80 years, Muslims have been making their way across North Africa from Arabia, that's there, making their way, and here is actually the Tangiers and Morocco's over here, if you step in Morocco you can actually see up in there, you look over this tiny strait and you can see Spain on the other side. Um, so the Arabs have come there, they've gone through what's now Morocco, and they're called Moors, and Muslim Arabs, and they jumped over this peninsula and entered into Spain, that was in 710. Okay, and they conquered the entire south of Spain, Andalusia, which is this yellow section over here. Um, all right, so the, uh, in a very short space of time, there was an amazing conquest, actually, the Muslim conquest of North Africa and, uh, and parts of Europe, including the whole southern part of Spain. In a very short space of time, they were the dominant people. Uh, they ruled all the way from Spain, which is the most, I think, the most west they ever, ever well, they couldn't have gone much more west, but they... Didn't go much north of that, but this was the westernmost point, all the way to Persia, which was <coughs> Iraq, Iran, all the way on the other side. A huge swath of land, unbroken. So if you were a, a person living under the rule of the of the Muslims, you could travel pretty much between those vast territories. Uh, you'd be always governed by people speaking the same language, similar culture, um, and that did a lot to the people who were governed. Who were, were under the control of the Muslims. Um, they made a decision, the Muslims at the time, and they, they changed their decision later, as you're going to see. Um, this was in the 8th century. They made a decision that pretty much if you acquiesced, you paid your taxes, you were allowed to practice as you pleased. Might not seem like a big deal today, but it was a very big deal then. Um, so Christians, of course, and the few Jews who were dotted around could practice as they pleased. Spain over here suddenly became open to Jews from more northern countries that weren't governed by Muslims and from other parts of the empire. And Spain uh, and Jews flooded into Spain in a very short space of time, especially the southern part over here. 
Um, and this was the beginning of what's called the Golden Age of Jewry, in, in, of Spanish Jewry, the Golden Age. It was 300 years, it was a long time. 300 years for Jews anywhere is a real chunk of time. Um, and it was really because of the, the tolerance, I suppose it's relative tolerance. I mean, you, you were still very different and you looked, you had to sometimes dress different and so on, but generally you could practice as a Jew and doors were open to you to uh, work in most fields and, uh, and kind of make a life for yourself so people can, as, as Jews do. And they entered into every walk of life. Life They had a particular advantage because Jews tended to speak a vast variety of languages, especially Latin, which was the language of commerce at the time. Um, so they became intermediaries between the Muslims and the surrounding Christians in places like France and a bit more north to where Germany is now and the Netherlands. The UK wasn't really, it wasn't a serious place at that time. Um, <laughs> sorry to say. Uh, but that, so, so, they, so this language then gave them real great influence. Um, the best example, have you ever heard of Khazdai ibn Shavrut? Khazdai ibn Shavrut. Uh, I was trying to think of a comparison. I suppose he was the Ben Gurion of his day. A guy who came, you know, like so many of these stories, came from nothing. And <laughs> I could talk about this for an hour, but very, really, very really briefly, he became the Inspector General of Customs. He was the King's confidant and advisor. He became effectively the de facto Minister for Foreign Affairs. He was the guy they sent out to speak to rulers of other countries. Oh, he was Jewish. So that's important. Okay. They would take on, on, on Muslim names, the same way many of us have English sounding names or anglicized names. Today we don't think much of it. You were living under Muslims, his Lord's name sounded, sounded Arabic. Okay, uh, so Ibn Shabrut was his name. Uh, he was an esteemed intellectual scientist and translator. These guys were amazing at the time. You didn't pick one field, you were, you were versed in a thousand fields. Uh, and his works were recognized across, across Europe. I'll just give that as an example of this golden age. There's about, I don't know, go look on Wikipedia, you'll find a hundred stories in five minutes about all these amazing people. Okay, that's the end of the golden age. I told you it was quick. Uh, nothing, nothing lasts forever. Um, and and what, was, what kept happening is that the Christians weren't so, they weren't happy that the Muslims had come into Spain. And they kept trying to attack from the northern side. Yeah, so this section here was never under Muslim control. It was, a, uh, it was under Christian control in the 10th century, so that's the 1100s. The Muslims um, were no longer supreme power. It took about 300 years for their power to diminish. The Christians clawed their way back. And the Muslims made a decision, which wasn't so good for them, to ally with Berber tribes from Morocco, what's now Morocco. Berbers were also, they weren't originally Muslims, but most of them became Muslim. Um, but they were, they were different people, and they needed reinforcements in the south to hold on to this territory. So, uh, so they said, Berbers, come over the strait, that little bit over there, and join us to fight these Christians. So at first it was good, they pushed back the Christians. But now they had Berbers who were living in, in the south of Spain, and wanted a, you know, some kind of, how was James? Uh, wanted some kind of uh, remuneration, I guess, for their, for, for, for coming to help the Muslims. Okay? And the Berbers took over many parts of the South themselves. Um, the Caliphate, which was this, this Muslim-controlled uh, area, broke up into a lot of different smaller states. I think there were about 50 of them very quickly. The Berbers, it was like a mixture between the Muslims and the Berbers, and everybody was fighting over territory in a very short space of time. Um, that strong central state broke up into a lot of into, into small pieces, and uh, this was officially the end of that golden age for Jews because the Berbers weren't interested in tolerance in the same way the Muslims. They were Muslim, but the 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 Moors they weren't they weren't interested in tolerance in the way that the Moors were, and in a very short space of time, 
he would, that it was, was pretty terrible for the Jews. And there are lots of stories about how that changed in almost seconds. Um, there was an anecdotal story. The most famous Jew of the time was uh, this guy Samuel Ibn Nagdela. Anybody heard of him? Also a genius. Uh, he was from Granada, uh, which was which was one of those small states. Okay, a poet, Talmud, a scholar, a statesman, a genius, a man of good education, but of humble beginnings. Okay, very similar story again. Um, he was second in command to the king. He even sometimes ruled the ruled the kingdom, or he was effective ruler of the kingdom when the king was incapacitated. The king of Granada it was a small kingdom amongst many small kingdoms, um, and he even led armies in the field. They said he was the last Jew to lead to lead an army in the field to the modern state of Israel. I don't, I, I don't know if that's true, but that's what I've read. Um, and he was remembered as Samuel the Prince when he died, a real hero. Um, but he was succeeded, you know, family businesses are not always a great thing. He was succeeded by his son, Joseph. And Joseph was now a wealthy guy because he, he inherited everything from the dad. And he, but he didn't inherit any of the humble traits or the, or the skills that, uh, that the old man had. And he was extremely corrupt. So it didn't take very long. In 1066, which is a prominent year in history, but also prominent uh, in, in Jewish history, even though you didn't know it. Um, he, uh, a mob of these angry Berbers, they were really upset that this, this powerful Jew, uh, who had all this wealth but was extremely corrupt and nepotistic, they were upset with him, and they raided his palace. He was put to death in the most gruesome fashion, and uh, then the quarter where the Jews lived in Granada was attacked. Uh, this led, you know, you've seen it, when there's one pogrom, there's suddenly many, and across the south of Spain, Jews were suddenly attacked. It was like, a, you know, quickly, like the, the spark, and Jews were attacked everywhere. All right, many fled, and some even converted to Islam, which we'll see becomes a trend as well in later times. Uh, as the Christians conquered, so, okay, so now the Christians were coming in, right? So the Berbers are holding up, and the Christians are coming in from the north, it's the 11th century, and the Christians also didn't like Jews. Why didn't they like Jews? Because they looked like Muslims, they spoke like Muslims, they had a separate religion that wasn't Christianity, it wasn't a happy time to be a Jew. <coughs> the Berbers didn't like you, and the Christians didn't like you. Um, so at first, again, so if you weren't being attacked by Berbers, you were being attacked by Christians. I'm giving a really brief summary, there's a lot to it if you want to go and research yourself. Um, end of the 11th century, going into the 12th century, the religious zeal be began to wane. I think it's an interesting thing in history, this, is that when you're not all powerful, you tend to compromise more, and as you become more powerful, you tend to, you tend to subjugate people who aren't like you, right? So at first they had to compromise a bit with the Muslims, and a bit with these Jews, and, uh, and they even needed their, their help. In fact, there were some stories about the Christian armies. You'd sometimes find Muslims fighting with the Christians against the Muslims, and sometimes the, the Christians fighting with the Muslims against the Christians. So it wasn't exactly uh, black and white. At this time, a lot of people helping each other. And Jews actually had a brief time in the 12th century where they, where they rose again. It was like a last hurrah for the for Spanish Jewry, um, and they did quite well in sciences finance and administration and, and so on. And as the Christians got stronger, what happened to the Jews? They started to become more Christian, taking on Christian names, some Christian customs and so on. Okay, you're getting the trend, right? Any questions at this point? We had about 11.30 or 40, okay? There were some amazing Jews at this time. They are, uh, they are products of, the, of this golden age, but most of them actually didn't practice in Spain, uh, including the Ibn Ezra which you've heard of, um, 
Judah Halevi, Halevi, he was a poet, a very famous Jewish poet, and the greatest scholar maybe of all time, the rabbinical scholar Maimonides, who was born in Cordoba but left as a child, I think probably 10 or 11 years old. The family uh, fled those Berbers who I was talking about earlier, but he was certainly a product of Spanish Jewry. His father was also a great rabbi, and, uh, and he in many ways followed the customs and the, and the kind of rabbinic thinking of Spain. Uh, okay, so that's the end of the rushed history. Now we'll get into some detail. So this is now, the th we're going into the 13th century, that's the 1200s, okay, and the Crusaders arrive. Crusaders came from other parts of Europe, mainly they really wanted these Muslims out of Spain, okay? It was a, a religious mission. Um, and they pretty much were destroying what remained of the Muslim Arab Empire everywhere. Um, and becoming stronger and stronger, and now it really became tough for Jews, but this time under Christians. Okay, remember there was that brief, you know, uh, last hurrah, now we're back to being oppressed. Um, and all of this oppression culminated in 1390, the 1391 riots. Has anybody got an idea about the 1391 riots? I didn't, okay, but it was one of those things like, a, I don't know, the Kishin of Pogrom or one of these dates in Jewish history that we should all know, but we don't know. Okay, 1391, uh, there was this guy called Ferrand Martinez. Martinez. Okay, he was a Catholic, a priest, and he hated Jews. And for, de for probably a decade, he'd been screaming, literally screaming from the pulpit, saying, these Jews are the cause of, our, of all our problems. You've heard this. In many ways, actually quite Hitlerite in the way he did things, riled up crowds. Uh, you know, the, the ignorant followed him. Uh, the more excited he got, the more excited they got. And in, in 1391... I think it was on Ash Wednesday, which I'm, I'm not an expert on Ash Wednesday, but there was some significance to that. He decided this was the day that he's going to get the mob to, to attack. And in Seville they started. Uh, it's here, somewhere. It's in the south here. In Seville, they, uh, the, the, a, a frenzied mob broke into the Jewish quarter, and again, violence spread like wildfire. So in town after town, throughout the whole of Spain, entire communities were exterminated. This wasn't a small pogrom, it was a, it was a coordinated mass attack against Jews across Spain. 1391, remember, in your, in your minds. Uh, 70,000 Jews were killed in a matter of weeks. It's a crazy number. 70,000. It's like the whole, more than the whole South African community in one shot. Okay? You know, and I found it amazing that we don't know this date. It's one of these, it's, it's, it's a more important date even than 1492, which comes later, I think. I mean, it was a, it was a pivotal moment for Spanish Jewry. And at this time, to say, I, the numbers are hard to come by, but there were probably still about half a million Jews in Spain, practicing Jews in, in 1391. So that's so you lose a quarter, a fifth of the community almost in one shot. Okay. The massacres were accompanied by a process never before seen in Jewish history. In the northern countries, so France, Germany, where there were small communities, um, if you were persecuted and you were a Jew, you generally uh, remained steadfast to your religion. You'd rather die than convert. Okay, you'd rather die than convert if you lived in a more northern country. But in Spain, the conditions were different, and it probably is something to do with this golden age that came before. The fiber of some Jews had been weakened by centuries of well-being. So their families, there were still wealthy families throughout Spain, even though it was much tougher. They were, this was old money from centuries of success. Um, so, so you were quite assimilated, probably very wealthy. In addition... Expulsions in the rest of Europe were coming to the ears. They had heard about these expulsions in other places. In England is the most well-known one around this time, but there were others. Um, and uh, they thought, well, if I flee and remain a Jew, then I'm toast. I mean, there's not, not much hope for me. So what are my options? 
I can convert. Um, another interesting reason is that the Rambam, I actually read this now, that read this last week, that the, there's, some people say that the Rambam, before his family left Spain, remember they were under the oppression of these Berbers, he might have, their family might have converted to Islam. Yes, yes Rabbi. I, I, I wanted to comment on it in the end. Yes. You did say it. Uh, he, he is, one of his most famous responses is mm. how one should treat people who converted and then would like to come back. And he's so compassionate. Yes, I was you know, the, He yeah. writes it so beautifully and, and in a such a gentle manner. And, and that's like part of the reason people are thinking that there is some kind of, or at least that somewhere on their journeys, because they met a lot of uh, zillness, of Islamic zillness, and, and during the journey they had to pretend to be Muslims or, or that along those lines. Mm. And this is yes, his own family, you mean, or people he yeah. associated with, yeah. Yeah, and 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 that's 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 answer that he's writing is like the base of how uh, how these converses are to be treated over Jewish history. Mm. So it impacted the uh, like generations after. And more, and even more than that, he actually suggested that if you were persecuted, you could opt to, uh, you could opt to convert as long as you kept your practice and in, in uh, you kept your practices, and that he and, and he said that if you that the time you couldn't convert was if you had to flagrantly uh, disobey the laws of Judaism. So you know, do things in public that wasn't acceptable. But if you in, pri in if in public you said I'm a Christian but or, or a Muslim but in private you carried on with your Jewish stuff that was fine. Okay, so this was an idea and it, it might have influenced. He was a Spanish Jew, so it might have influenced uh, the way people thought. Yes, James. Do you think with the waves of anti-Semitism coming and going by now, it was sort of just you can do this whilst there's a wave of anti-Semitism, fully expecting that times would get better. Yeah, there were definitely no doubt that you thought if you were going to become a Christian, it would be better for you. Is um, that what you're saying? Yeah, well, no, then you'd pretend to be Christian until times got better to be a Jew again. I'll get it. Okay. I'm, not, I'm not sure is the answer, but, I think, okay. but yes, it's possible. Um, or I think it was different in different households, what your real motivation was, but it's a great question. So James is asking, because we're going to get to it now, that, some, that many of these converts remain, uh, continue to practice Judaism. What was their real motivation? What, was their, what did they really want out of this? Um, okay, so the key thing to understand is that many Jews converted to Catholicism and stayed Catholic. Okay, that's, they were Catholics. All right? And, oh, and I said that this hadn't happened before. Let me just actually read what I wrote because it sounds nice. Whatever the reason, for the first and only time in history, the Jewish morale broke when put to the test. It had never been like this in any other place where, en masse, almost everybody converted. Okay, there were times when everybody left or, you know, did other things, but they didn't convert. Okay, so throughout the peninsula, thousands accepted Catholicism to escape death, led in some cases by the wisest, wealthiest, and most prominent members of the community. So I remember I started by saying there was a quarter million, so probably a quarter million Jews converted. And as I say, okay, I'll get it. Spanish Jewry found itself radically changed now. Sp the community. Okay, so on the one side, there were some re remaining Jews, maybe 100,000, 200,000, it's hard to tell. But now there was this vast community of new Christians. Conversos, they were called in Spanish. Conversos, people who had converted to Catholicism. And there were also Muslim converts, by the way, at the same time. Many Muslims also converted, and they had their own story, including kind of, uh, what do you call it, like Murano Muslims, people who practice Islam in private, but that's a whole other story. Okay, um, so some of the converts, uh, I would say it's probably the majority, just understanding history, were sincere Christians. They said, okay, we're becoming Catholics, we're going to stay Catholic. 
Um, in fact, some were quite virulent Catholics, and they led, I was saying to Ian earlier, we were chatting, with, uh, some of them led the fight in the Inquisition, which we're going to get to. Some of the worst of the Inquisitors were, were previously Jews. Okay, they're not such an important part of this story. Um, certainly a large number of new Christians, though, remain disinterested in being Catholics. And I think on a scale, some were very disinterested and some were less disinterested. Uh, and the, the important thing to know is that the Spanish Catholics who weren't previously Jews understood this. They knew that the new Christians weren't that interested in being Catholics. In fact, they called them Moranos. And Murano, there's a lot of different uh, definitions, but one of them is like a, it's a swine or pig. Uh, but there are others. Uh, the, hmm? Yeah. Yeah, so there's, yes, that's also true. Uh, but but whatever it was, it was Murano was a derogatory term. Isn't think of it differently now, but it was a derogatory term. And uh, yes, so Christian Spains called, you didn't identify as a Marana, you were a Christian if you... It wasn't a Jewish term. Yes, and it wasn't a Jewish term either. If you were, that's a great, a great point. If you were a Christian who was, uh, who was secretly practicing your Judaism, you didn't say, I'm a secret, <coughs> secret yeah. Jew. Okay, you didn't say, I'm a Marana, you just kind of quietly went on your business and practiced as a secret Jew. Um, but the Christians who were, the, the let's call them authentic Catholics, called you a Murano, probably to your face, and certainly kept themselves in many respects uh, separate. The, the, the Catholics in Spain felt, felt that they were separate from the new Christians. Okay, so if you didn't convert very briefly, it was very tough. So these are the guys who said, we're going to remain Jews no matter what. They were probably the minority. Um, so numbers and wealth quickly dec were decimated. Efforts were made by the Spanish to cut them off completely. Uh, from gaining a livelihood. I've been going to this for an hour as well, which is quite amazing what was done in a short space of time. And the actual real purpose was they wanted them to convert. So they say, if you want to live, you've got to convert. Otherwise, we're going to cut off all avenues uh, that, of, of how you can make a living. Okay, uh, some, some brief things. They were confined to special quarters, excluded from the arts. You couldn't employ a Christian. You couldn't settle disputes according to Talmudic law which was still generally the practice that in different communities you could decide how you would, you would settle a dispute. Um, you couldn't levy your own taxes. That was bad for Jews wherever they went. If you couldn't levy your own taxes, you were finished. Uh, you couldn't assume the title of Don, carry arms, go beardless. Um, and even your clothes were regulated if you were a Jew. You had to wear a long, coarse coat. It must be very uncomfortable in the heat of summer. They, uh, you weren't allowed to study Talmud or to possess more than one synagogue in each town. It was terrible for the remaining Jews. Um, and over the next 20 years, so now from the 1390s to into the 15th century, there were more and more conversions and I suppose more and more Muranos. And over 20 years, the new generation of Muranos had now grown up. So there were the converts who were the parents, who had children, who you might think would say, I'm happy to be a Catholic, I don't want the Soros in my life. But they stayed Murano in many cases, not in all cases, in many cases, the children continue to be Murano in secret. Murano is the Jews who converted to Catholicism, and then but secretly practiced a form of Judaism in their own homes or even in their own communities. Okay, everyone understand that? I'm going to give examples now. Okay, so they, these were, now you have the children, so they're born in the church, they were baptized in the church, educated in the church, but still just interested in being Christians. Uh, you'd go to the priest to be married, and uh, your children would be baptized, and you'd attend mass and confession, and all these important uh, um, uh, you know, moments that a Christian must attend to. 
but that in your heart you still felt that you were a Jew. Okay. Um, examples. They observe the traditional ceremonies. So Shabbat is the most central thing to I think most communities. They kept it as far as they could. And the story is that from if you if you were standing at a height overlooking a city, you could see which houses were Moranas and which weren't because you wouldn't have a fire in your house in Shabbat. Okay. And there was no smoke coming out the chimney. Uh, some Moranas would only eat meat prepared in the kosher manner and supplied by a Jewish butcher. Most fasted on Yom Kippur and they celebrated Pesach. The story is told of one Morana who ate unleavened bread throughout the year. This is very probably apocryphal, but also like explains a lot. Uh, the one Moran who ate unleavened bread throughout the year on the grounds of ill health, so as to ensure having it on, pe- on Pesach. Mm. Okay, you're getting the idea. So you would, you, know, you would do these things to seem normal, but you weren't normal. Many circumcised their children, um, and in many cases they married amongst themselves. I think it must have been very difficult if you were a secret Jew and suddenly you married a, a Catholic, and not, you know, rather the more Catholic, it couldn't be a secret Jew anymore. So they kept amongst themselves, but. Uh, and some formed religious, this is quite interesting, they formed a religious association, they'd say they're the association of saints, whatever, it just looked like they were Catholic, but actually everybody who was going to that meeting was a Marana and knew it, and I guess some others also knew it, but, but generally they were just left to do that, as long as you said you were under the saint of it. Um, and they would often pray quietly and say, you know, use prominent words like Adonai in the prayers, okay, even if it seemed, seemed like, a, like they were praying a Christian, a Christian prayer. Okay, this is important, but they weren't Jews. Okay, they remember they were Catholics, and they had converted to Catholicism. And if you were a Catholic and you said you were a Catholic, the the, the doors were open to you. You were in, in at least nominally you were this a, Spani- a Spaniard like any other. And as happens, social progress becomes quite rapid for you if you allowed if you were a Jews allowed in. And now there were Catholics who were Jews who were allowed into the into the house, I suppose. Okay, um, so for the next 80 years, so this is from about 1400, for the next 80 years, in every rank of society, in every walk of life, Moranas were to be found occupying the most prominent positions throughout Spain, drawing lucrative revenues, the wealthier intermarried with the highest nobility. So if you were powerful and rich, you probably, you, you might have done a little bit of a few Jewish things, but you married a Christian family. Um, and, but that resulted in them, right up to the monarchy, there were, there were, uh, there were sort of Jewish blood that... Uh, I'll use the Spanish thinking, I suppose, that it contaminated throughout, throughout every walk of life. Okay. Um, even the church, you know, there were so there were priests in the church who were secretly practicing a form of Judaism at home, right up to the church. Okay. Now, but the people of Spain, I've mentioned this, could see in them only hypocritical Jews who had lost none of their characteristics, fighting their way into the best positions in the country to the detriment of the true Christians. Okay, so once more, now it's 80 years has passed, almost 100 years since that big pogrom in 1391. 100 years is quite a long time. I mean, in South Africa, we've, uh, we've only been in, Jews have only been here 150 or 40, 50 years maybe. Um, so in, in 100 years, you know, these Moranos have done excellently, and the priests started to, to rally against them in the churches. They screamed from the pulpit, calling attention to this misconduct not this time of Jews. Remember, there were still Jews. I hope it's not too confusing. There were still Jews, and then there were Christians who once were Jews who were practicing as Jews, and then there were Christians, the rest of the country were just Catholics, um, and I suppose a few Muslims. Um, so now they said, this time they didn't rally against Jews, they rallied against Christians who were, who were secretly practicing as Jews. Got it. Any questions? OK. 
Yeah, I hope it's all clear. I found it a bit confusing as well. And Daniel, is it the whole of Spain or was it a part, the north part of Spain? That's a good question. Uh, no, it's, it's mainly the southern part of Spain actually, but by this stage the Moranos were living throughout Spain. Yeah, so there were, there, was, there were secret Jews living throughout Spain, and in fact Jews were living throughout Spain, even though they had m m mainly lived in the south in that golden age. They, you know, when were the Muslims pushed out of Spain? In the 12th, the 12th century they were finally pushed out. Is that right? The 12th, I said it earlier. Yeah, so, and, then, and then it was a Christian, the, the entire Spain was Christian and Portugal, and you could travel you know, generally wherever you wanted. Okay, so, um, yes. Yeah, I'm going to. Yes, it, it comes later. So that is it. So at this point, okay, most Jews are in Spain. Very few Jews in Portugal. Okay, most Jews. There were a few, but I suppose it was that that, that they were mostly in the south, and then a few trickled north. And Portugal was the state, just like uh, all of these other little ones here. And there were a few Jews in Portugal, and a few there, a few there, a few there, and quite a lot in the south. Okay. Separate country. I don't think there were countries like the way we think of a nation state today. It was like a kingdom where the king would be powerful and sometimes they would they would merge with the neighboring kingdom for a period and then break up and fight and they were all fighting against each other. That's one of the reasons that, that the Christians needed the Muslims to help them at that one time. Remember I said there were Muslims fighting in Christian armies. That was usually actually when they were fighting another Christian army. Yes. Portugal the bishops observing the, the, uh, the king in the late 1300s. So Portugal for all that time was, was part of Spain. So it's only in the late 1300s that it became a state of its own. I suppose a separate state with its own identity because there was yes. no such thing as Spain. There was no th such thing as Spain in the way we know it today. There's lots of different kingdoms who were, so they might have identified as like a... no such thing as France. Yes, uh, yeah. And no such thing as the United Kingdom and all these things we take for granted. And, you know, the Scots and the English hated each other more than anyone. They hated. Um, that's probably still true. Yeah, that's true. Uh, all right, sorry, let me just find my place. Um, okay, so, uh, this time just keep in mind that the priests were rallying against the Jews. The year's about 13... Uh, 1370, uh, 1470, 1470, okay? So 1391, the riots, Jews convert, many practices as Jews in secret, rise to the top of society, and about 80 years later, now there's, now there's extreme resistance from the Spanish against these Moranos, these secret Jews. Okay, not against Jews, secret, the secret Jews, that was, the, that was who they really hated. Okay, so now we're in 1473. In Cordoba, we've mentioned them, it's in the south over there, it's here. It was a very prominent Jewish, probably the most powerful Jewish city at one time in history. Um, so a rumor emerges that the image of the Madonna had been sprinkled with foul water flung from a window by a Murano girl. Okay, that's this, you know these stories, like if some, somebody hears this, this terrible thing happened. She threw foul water onto the Madonna. Okay, so, three, so then that gives impetus for riots. It's the same thing, terrible murder and rape and horrific actions by the by the local Christians against the Moranos. Okay, so now these were riots against Moranos. They were Catholics pretending to be Jews. I keep repeating it, but it's, they weren't. It wasn't against Jews. And uh, there was really you know, stories of bodies of Moranos piled high in the streets. And I suppose the important point is, 80 years earlier, in 17 in 1391, 1391, when the forefathers had converted, probably your great grandfather converted, you had an avenue to escape. You could accept Christianity if you were a Jew. But now you were a Christian. 
and there was no avenue, but there was no avenue of escape for you. Okay. Yes. No. What happened to the Jews? Jews, saved Jews. I'll mention it. It's a good question, but keep but think about in this whole period they became progressively poorer, less influential, unable to live decent lives, and real really marginalised in society. They were like a non-entity in the historical story at this point. They weren't killed off. No, they weren't killed off. There was a pro still a prominent number, probably a few hundred thousand, but they were just they just didn't count. Okay, and then we'll get to them because it's, it's coming up. All right, so in 1794, Isabella ascends to the throne. Have you heard of Isabella? It's like a real, she's a, not, a, not a happy name for Jews. Um, and she marries this chap, Ferdinand, and that was a typical example of two different states coming together. Yes, Castile and Aragon, they were both in the north. Castile and Aragon. So these two states over here. It was a merging of those two states, but they, they, were, the, they were the prominent... Uh, monarchy in that whole region and had had alliances with everybody. Okay, um, so the queen's advisors urged her that the only manner in which the realm could be religiously pure, which was required to rid it of all the troubles besetting us, besetting it, was the introduction of a special tribunal for the hunting out and punishing of heretics. Okay, now a heretic is not a Jew. A heretic is a Christian who isn't a real Christian. Okay. Right, I also found this quite, I, I didn't quite get, I, my head wasn't there before I read this. Okay, people think like the heretic is a Jew who's not a Christian. They didn't care about the Jews. They cared about a Christian who was saying I'm a Christian, but in secret I'm actually a Jew. That isn't, that's the worst, that's much worse than being a Jew. Alright, so they, they set up the special tribunal, it was called the, the Inquisition. Okay, that is what the Inquisition was. It was aimed almost exclusively at converted Jews. Okay. The Inquisition soon became the wealthiest and most influential corporation in the whole country. It could even effectively override decisions of the Queen herself. Uh, at frequent intervals, the stage these things called acts of faith. So that was, you've seen the image, I'm sure, especially in art and, and uh, you know, historical drawings. If you confess to being a heretic, you'd be stripped. So, that, so you said, I, you know, the truth is I've been saying I'm a Catholic, but actually I'm a Jew. You admitted it. You were stripped of your property and you were condemned to imprisonment, sent away, or possibly you were hanged at the galleys. Your options weren't great. But if you refused to confess, if you said, I'm a Catholic, even though you're telling me I'm a secret Jew, then, or maybe you even said, I'm proud to be a secret Jew and I'm not going to ever be a Catholic, then you were burnt alive. And that's those images, those terrible images of people on a stake being burnt alive. Okay, that's the kind of thing the Inquisition did. So most people didn't get burnt alive, probably about 10%, suppose that God, but there was, there was hundreds of thousands of people who went through this inquis inquisitorial process and had to, you know, confess to something, and then they, they still landed up in a worse position, but they weren't burnt alive. Okay, it was, it was active for three centuries, which I found absolutely incredible, so from 14, from the 1470s, for three centuries, 300 years, this thing existed. Yeah, huh? into the into the nineteenth century, fifteenth, uh, uh, no, the seventeenth century, eighteenth uh, century, to seventeen late seventeen hundreds. But by that stage, I mean the world was a completely different place, and they still had this inquisition. Um, it's thought to have condemned more than three hundred seventy thousand persons. And I said one tenth were burnt at the stake. Okay, and the general population of Spain were encouraged to denounce any persons they suspected to be guilty of being a secret Jew. Like you can imagine, the atmosphere it must have been terrible. And many of these secret Jews were prominent. You've got to remember that. They weren't like living in a, 
in a ghetto somewhere, it was they were prominent members of society. Lists were circulated containing signs by which a secret Jew could be recognized from purchasing new crockery in March or April. Right? These are legitimate things. If you went to go buy some forks or spoons in, in yeah, before Pesach, you could be that could be enough to condemn you. I mean, it's not like Catholics didn't go by forks in, in March, but that was, you know, that was the craziness of this whole thing. Um, I suppose there's some analogies in South African history of like, you know, you, con you condemn people for arbitrary, with arbitrary traits, you know, that, was that kind of thing. Uh, if you washed your hands before prayer, if you called children by Old Testament names, and they were probably fairly common names like Sarah or something, it was still considered too Jewish. If you put a fresh tablecloth on, on your table on a Friday night, you know, your, your housekeeper could out you, that kind of thing. Um, wearing clean clothes on a Friday or Saturday. The aid of Jews themselves was enlisted. These are always tragedies in Jewish history when the Jews out other Jews, or in this case, Moranos. Rabbis were compelled to force congregations under pain of excommunication to reveal incriminating information which might have come to their knowledge. Because obviously there was interaction between Moranos, not in all cases, but a lot of times when Moranos and the, the remaining real Jews would interact with each other. And a real Jew might know who a Morano was, but now he couldn't keep Shtum because then he would be punished. Must have been terrible. Um, lighting of candles came under close scrutiny. Uh, if you were mouthing words while you lit candles, the candles were lit for everything, for, li for light in the home, but if you suddenly were mouthing some words in front of your candles, it could be considered a Jewish prayer. Um, in one of the trials, a servant claimed that on Friday at sundown, certain candles were lit behind close, closed doors. You know, they closed the door before they lit the candle. Uh, in another, it was reported that the candle holders in the house were regularly cleaned on a Friday. A household's cleaning routine was meticulously scrutinized. It was an odd practice of sweeping dirt towards the center of the room rather than out the door. Has anybody heard of this? Okay, I hadn't, but I but some people at my previous talk had. So they would so if you were sweeping, you would first sweep to the center of the room, then you would pick up the dirt and take it out. Um, and the reason for that was that uh, it was considered it was a superstitious belief, obviously no halachic basis uh, in Spanish Jewry that if you swept past the mezuzah, it was a, like showed disrespect to the house and the mezuzah. So that was a practice, a custom of Spanish Jewry, and they carried on doing that for generations. Amazing, eh? Um, culturally acceptable substitutes found in time, eh? Yeah, 20 minutes, half an hour. Okay, good. Uh, culturally acceptable substitutes were an option for some Moranos. So <coughs> corn tortillas uh, were similar to matzah. So there was, there was that, that was, you know, if you ate corn tortillas on Pesach, nobody would probably, probably see you, you know, uh, actually practicing Judaism. Um, you could cook one f kind of food for outsiders and another for your own consumption. Uh, you had to try to avoid tray foods, so some would take a mouthful of pork, which was very common food stuff, and then spit it out when no one was looking. Others would make it publicly known that they could not eat pork or shellfish because it gave them up stomach upsets. Alright, so that's the kind of thing, I and mean, there's hundreds of examples, I just picked a few sort of interesting ones. There were attempts. So if you were caught, like spitting out your pork, then somebody could say, no, she, no she's a real, she's a Jew, you know, she's a Murano. Um But but maybe maybe you got away with it a hundred times, and that's the way you did it. Um, and there were obviously, it's not, it's grey, you know, like some people would eat pork, but would light candles and shops. Wasn't like I think there's sometimes you know we 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 put you know in history you put people into boxes so you were either like a total secret Jew or you were a 
or you were a Jew or you were a Catholic. Actually, there was a lot of grain in between them. Okay, I suppose like our community today, even though we don't admit it. Um, okay, uh, okay. Now Naomi asked, what about the practicing, the openly practicing Jews, people who said, "I'm a Jew, I'm not a Catholic." Okay, so they considered continue to live in Spain. Um, but this was an interesting thing. The Inquisition, remember, so that body that was set up to find the heretics, couldn't touch the Jews. Okay, they were non-believers outside the church. They weren't heretics. They were simply non-believers, and the Inquisition wasn't set up to go after them. Yet a Murano could be burnt alive for secretly practicing a smidgen of what the unconverted Jews were performing daily, daily in public with impunity. A real Jew would put his candles on his windowsill on Shabbos and say, I'm a Jew. Okay, he wasn't burnt at the stake for that. Everybody <coughs> understand what I'm saying? Okay. Um, it was hopeless to attempt, the Spanish realized quite quickly, it was hopeless to attempt, attempt to get rid of Muranos while Jews were there to set the example of how they must practice. And this was this led in March 1492, which is the other major day in Spanish Jewish history, major year, uh, to Ferdinand Isabella signing a decree expelling all Jews from from Spain within a period of four months. Okay, so these were the practicing Jews, not the Moranos. The Moranos, the Inquisition was after you. The practicing Jews, you had to leave within four months. Okay, and there were there were these time periods were outrageous. So you can imagine being told you have to leave in four months. So it was a Okay, so the, quite interestingly, there's a lot written about this. The influential Jews tried to bribe the government. They tried to use their influence. Um, but the decision was final. It didn't take long for them to say it's final. And uh, again, many Jews realized we can't leave in four months. This is our home. Where are we going to go? And they also converted. All right? And now you had more Moranos. Because some of those Jews also wanted to carry on practicing as Jews in secret. Okay, got it. Uh, but the majority of the remaining Jews refused to convert. And I suppose you've got to think about this. So we had this huge conversion, but these were guys who had held out under, you know, in the, with the most terrible lives for a century. They weren't going to convert now. They were, these were the guys who were the most staunch. And they refused to convert, and they were exiled. But at the same time, the Inquisition was going on. It gets a bit confusing. So now the Moranos also said, all right, the Jews are leaving. We're also going to leave, because our alternative is possibly being burnt at the stake. So, that, so you had a lot of Jews leaving around the 1490, early 1490s, and a lot of Moranos left at the same time. And the numbers are very unclear, but it's, it could be between 100,000 people, mainly Jews who hadn't converted, and up to 800,000. I read somewhere 800,000. It's probably somewhere in the middle. So you've got 250,000 Jews who converted, and many, stayed, remember, 100 years before, and many had stayed practicing Judaism in some form or another, and a good few hundred who remain Jews who are now exiled from Spain. Okay, we're going to go now. All right, so first of all, they went to Portugal, and you are right, they were, by now Portugal was, was an autonomous, I don't think they called it a state, but it was an autonomous, yeah, kingship or monarch, uh, region. All right, here's Portugal. So the first place that most of them went was Portugal. Very bad news. Um, but not initially. You'll see why. Okay, so so uh, Jews, the Jews who were in Portugal had been left alone by the monarchy in Portugal. So so they'd been pretty much able to carry on their lives. <coughs> and I think that they were they were wealthier and and had been not as uh, as oppressed as the Spanish Jews. So it offered the fir- it was really the, fir- the first place to go. Um, there was this king. His name was Manuel. And he was, he was uh, at first quite kind to Jews, relatively, I suppose. 
but Precious changed his mind, and the reason was that Ferdinand and Isabella had a daughter, also named Isabella, and he wanted to marry her. Probably, maybe he was in love, but he also saw this as a strategic alliance. Remember, they were right next door over there. Um, but Isabella and Ferdinand went, uh, they could see what was going on here, and they said, all right, Manuel, if you want Isabella Jr., you've got to follow our policies on the Jews. And uh, and actually later, he, he also set up an inquisition for the secret Jews, remember, we're not going there. But he said, you've got to follow our policy on the Jews. <coughs> In 1496, they signed a marriage treaty, which I think was the most important part of the marriage, if, if you were a king. And a week later, another royal decree was issued, banishing all Jews from Portugal within 10 months. Okay, so the Jews had gone to Portugal, hundreds of thousands now lived in Portugal, and, and uh, they had to leave. Okay, so in, in these 10 months, unlike the Spanish, he tried to convert as many Jews as possible in that short time span they had. He said, Jews, including the exiled Jews who came over here, you've got you to convert it will save you, and of course, you know, that's the ultimate sacrifice is converting to Catholicism, you must do it. Um, and, and, he, and he tried to force them. So he first issued an order that all Jewish children are to be presented for baptism. Um, and there were terrible stories of parents smothering their children. Again, remember, these were the Jews who had held out for a hundred years as Jews. They weren't going to be have their children baptized now. They would smother their children and then kill themselves. Um, later on, as, it, as the time came to get onto the ships to exile, they, uh, they were, the Jews were ordered to pass through narrow streets, and they weren't given any food or drink. It was, it was meant, you were meant to feel so desperate that you had no choice but to say, all right, I'm a, I'm, I'm a Catholic. Okay, if you still failed to convert, you were, um, you were guarded until the end, and the time period elapsed, and then you were, you were informed that you were, too, you were disobedient, you forfeited your liberty, and you are now the king's slaves to be dealt with as he pleased. Um, at this point, many said, okay, I'll go to the church, I'll be baptized. Um, some were even dragged to the church to be baptized. And if you were really stubborn and you refused to be baptized, sometimes they just sprinkled some water, holy water on you and said, be baptized. Okay. But then that made you subject to the position. Yes. No, yes, if you still, yes, in theory. So, so that is a good point. So you could become a Christian and not be subject to Inquisition if you just carried on practicing as a Christian. But if you did anything that was a bit Jewishy, you were probably going to be caught. And you, and you correct, James, because now we had a whole lot more conversos who soon became Moranos in Portugal. Okay? But this was a bit of a difference because these were the Jews who were forcibly converted and wanted, really wanted to be Jews. Okay? And uh, it wasn't just the weaker Jews who had converted like that time in 1391. Okay, and there's a whole story about that and how they, their practices were sort of more intense and so on. Um, it also meant that everybody, right from the poorest to the wealthiest to the rabbis, everybody was now a new Christian. You couldn't be a Jew in Portugal. Okay, so, so there was a high chance that you were a Marana. Got it. Um, and also I told you about the Inquisition It only came to Portugal 50 years later which gave the Moranas a little bit of a gap to again prosper and they did they permeated every rank of society it's almost like a repeat of the same history they permeate, this is in Portugal now permeated every rank of society every walk of life and contributed largely to contemporary Portuguese culture which hasn't changed so much since the, since the 16th century um, it said we were talking about this that 70, even 80% of Portuguese today have some kind of Jewish uh, um, lineage, 
lineage, um, and certainly at least 20%. If you know anybody, and in fact, South African Portuguese, I think some even identify with a lineage of being, of being Jewish. Because they really did permeate everywhere. There were a lot of them, and they were forced to be they were forced to be Christians. There were no Jews left, and you went out and you became Portuguese. Yes. Yes. So tell us. Do you want to tell? Maybe at the end. Your family story. I actually heard from a maiden at the house shop. And a maiden, a maiden was my son. What's your surname? And. We landed somewhere because our dad, our dad, grandfather wanted to kill one of them. And he was a se- he was a secretly practicing Jew. That's what she said to me. Nice. Somebody around me wanted to kill There's amazing stories, I guess. Yes. I understand that when when that ten months was up, that the Jews in Chichester had to come back, that they were not allowed to leave. Some did leave. Some, some still. Yes, I think, I think if you didn't leave, you, 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 you're right. In the ten months, many left, and we'll get to that because that's like the third part of the story. Um, and you're right, that they, they were closed, and that's when you they sprinkled the water or dragged you to the church, and then you became a Christian. You were, you weren't a Jew. There was no such thing. But many had left. That's what I mean. Sorry. So many had left. Yes. And uh, uh, Jessica, and then sorry, your name? Alistair. Alistair. Okay, Jessica, and then Alistair. Yes, I've heard that as well. Actually, at Limburg in another talk, somebody mentioned that that was like a secret sign. I, I was going to ask him the same question. They were they were limited to names. That is how you know the descendants, like Perez. Often it's assumption that it's a Hebrew name. That Perez is a pear tree. So they were given the names of fruit trees, and that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say I'd say we should be careful to like not say every Perez in the you know has is from Jewish stock, but that it was probably that Jews tended to these kind of names, something like that. <laughs> Is that a, tr- a tree tree of some kind? I that name? Well, he just said mm. it sounded to me like it might be a fruit tree, and uh, mm-hmm. he said that yes, they had he had heard of some Jewish lineage. Yeah. And he's a headmaster of a Catholic school, a real headmaster. And he's a hundred percent Catholic. But it is there's no there's no doubt that so because it's it's like quite hard to get your head around. But you've got to think that every Jew who was in Portugal became a Christian. And they permeated in a very short space of time, 50 years into every walk of life. So Portuguese today, much more than the Spaniards, have to be of, many of them have to be of Jewish, uh, have some kind of Jewish stock. Okay, I'd like to continue. Um, okay, so, all right, most Moranos, you know, like we like to be romantic about the stuff and think that every Morano eventually became a Jew. Again, like a fully-fledged Jew. It doesn't happen like that. Um, within about 50 to 60 years, most of the of the conversos who were practicing in secret stopped practicing Judaism in secret and just became Catholics. Okay, and they stayed in Spain and Portugal. By the 18th century, there were no secret Jews left in either country. So you either not practicing or so very few. Were. 
by your family? They still are. Well, very few. Okay, In Portugal, there's whole villages of, of Moranos to this day. Actually, I did hear about in the north of Portugal there was one there was one community that was quite strong. Okay, but let me say this: that's fair, but there was it wasn't a th- it wasn't a prominent uh, no, not prominent. Not prominent. Okay, that's fair. Yes. Oh, the Jews who attained the two the, the, those who stayed Jewish. Those who stayed Jewish, didn't they show Sometimes, but not always. And the examples I'm going to get to now. I think I'm running out of time, actually. Yeah. Is, it, is it fun? 20 minutes. Oh, okay. Strict. Uh, it should be. Uh, all right. So, again, so issues right. Because I had read about that Portuguese community recently found that were practicing as Jews, but there were very few. There are very few, and then by the 18th century, there were very few. So this is coming from a place where there were hundreds of thousands of people secretly practicing. Okay, so culture to be secret. I think it's become part of the culture. Okay. So oh yeah, okay. So, so this is true. So there's also a difference between one second. There is a difference between you saying I'm a Jew in secret and just having customs that were Jewish in your home. So that's important to differentiate. Yeah, sometimes you don't even know why you do something. I mean, every one of our families has weird customs, right? So who knows who we came from? So, so there was a typical example was that on a Friday night, the, you know, the mother of the house or the grandmother would light candles, but nobody knew why they were doing it. Yeah, that's a, so that definitely continued for centuries. Um, I'll get to you in a second. Um, oh, oh, okay, yes. So that's so an, another another one I read about was that they in springtime they would eat unleavened bread or less leavened bread, but again you know it was just like the springtime custom. Uh, yes, it's in our family what happened was they would tell the children that they were Jews until their deathbed usually, and then they'd carry on the customs and the kids didn't understand it. But the reason why they didn't tell the children while they were alive was because that meant the child was at risk of being killed. So it was more important to practice. A degree of Yiddishkeit, then, then to actually know that you were a Jew, if that makes sense. Yeah, okay. Because the minute you knew you were a yeah. Jew, you were on death row. So a lot of kids didn't know they were Jews, but they knew there was something. But they were still like practicing some kind of customs yeah. that was they like didn't keeping quite know them. why they were doing it, but they knew yeah. there was something. Yeah. And in your history is not linear, so there's all different, like there's lots of gray. It's like there's, you know, some families would have told their kids they're Jewish and many didn't, I'm sure. Alright, so. Now we get to the, 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 the sort of final, quite significant chunk of the story, is that many of these Muranos, um, uh, so many feared for their lives. Okay, there were firstly the Jews who didn't want to convert, all right? They, they, remember, in the time of the Inquisition, and they left, and, uh, the time of the expulsion, and they left, okay? Some went to Portugal and all became Christians, but many Spanish Jews still didn't want to become Christians, and they left Spain. They got on the boat and left. At the same time, many Moranos left with them, and later on, from Portugal, many of those Moranos also left. Okay, and the, and uh, uh, yes, oh, sorry, yes, okay. And uh, although immigration was forbidden, you actually couldn't. If you were a Catholic in Spain or Portugal, you they really discouraged you leaving. Uh, but you could say, I'm going on a pilgrimage to Rome or something, and then you got out and, and left. Because there were lots of examples of people leaving. Um, many of the exiles who did leave Spain were lost at sea. 
the ships went down. Um, so there's lots of stories about this as well. Uh, many were assaulted or murdered by local inhabitants along the North African coast there. They were sold into slavery. They were very powerful kingdoms in, the, in North Africa. Sold into slavery, <coughs> or you died of illness, famine, fire, just pretty tough if you were an exile, an exiled Jew or an exiled Moroni. Um, so this answers your question. Your name, please? Sally. Sally. So Sally asked, what, what did the Jews, the guys who'd never converted, think about the Moranas? So often when they left, they were, there were Moranas and Jews traveling together. But uh, the rabbinic literature of the time shows quite a few examples where the unconverted Spanish Jews, the, the Jews who were always Jews, um, were living a, 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 a among Moranas but saw it as a great challenge to do so. They didn't see these Moranas as real Jews. Okay, and they would differentiate themselves. Uh, so for example, they'd add a suffix to their name, uh, usually the Hebrew letter Tet, which should, uh, stood for Tahor, which is Tahor Pure, right? So Tahor, again, I'm not sure that's such a corroborated story, but it's, it's that kind of until thing. Until 20th century, people call it like Samachtet, Sparadi, Tahor. Some of them, like a few, a few stories. Yes. For example, the family of the president, Isaac Nabon, the fifth president. <laughs> you know, Yoram Gaon, the singer. There's like prominent families who took pride that they are like pure Sephardi Jews. Yes, never cut them. Yeah. Like a, so, yeah. So, yeah. Yes, Yes, and maybe they were so brazen that they, his grand, great, 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 just said, I'm Tahor, and yeah. you know, don't, don't question <laughs> Um, it's a great example. So there's those kind of stories. So, but again, there was there were times when Moranos and Jews lived in successful communities together, and there were times when they saw each other as different, and there was tension. So it wasn't one or the other. Um, interestingly, this is we know this: the culture of 15th century Spain, so that's the 1400s, um, tended to to carry with these Jews in exile um, for 400 years, I mean, right till the present or, or recent present. Um, so you'd wear Spanish, the Spanish fashions of the day on a Shabbos. But the Spaniards had long stopped wearing the, you know, silk or whatever. Um, it, you, you cook Spanish dishes. And uh, most of all preserved the language called Ladino, which was Hebrew, Arabic, a few other elements uh, mixed together. Because remember, the Jews had been, the, their golden age was the Muslim age, and many of them spoke Arabic even into the Christian times. So the Dino was a sort of mixture of those two, and I suppose there were a lot of them in Arabic countries as well. Um, it was actually mixed with Castilian. I'm not an expert on language, but that's a, that's an example of what of how they carried the tradition. So many exiled Moranas were absorbed in the surrounding population, and many disappeared. That's the secret Jews, and I would say even some Jews chose when they reached the new country. They didn't. They decided actually it's not worth the hassle. We'll also assimilate. That happened everywhere. But others, other Moranos, we're going to speak, I'm looking at specifically Moranos, the secret Jews, that others maintained this dual existence for many generations. Um, if you were in a more tolerant country, you were able to organize yourself into a cohesive group, and maybe even open group that practiced Judaism. Um, and if you were in a less tolerant country, you had to continue to be quite secret. A few examples. So they first went to Muslim-controlled lands. Again, in history, you, like it shows, you go to the most convenient spot. So south of Spain is Morocco. There were 300,000 Jews in Morocco at the peak of the community. Most of them had come from Spain. Um, and right the way, all the way to Turkey, most of those were Muslim countries, uh, you found Morano Jews. 
Um, it wasn't always easy in the Muslim countries. There were restrictions on practice, but generally there was a tolerance for these Jews, and that also kept them. That's what you know. You'd, that, that was the first port of call. Uh, Western Europe was a, a, you know, at this stage still quite a backwater. Um, yes, only later, not initially. So most Muranas went first to Arab. To, this is in the 16th century. Uh, the, sorry, my, uh, the 15th century. No, the 15th and 16th centuries. Okay, they went first. Institutions like churches and so on. I'm going to tell you now. Good question. I think it was a, actually sometimes they would call it a church, and sometimes it was it depended where you were. If you were in, if you were allowed to practice openly again, you would call it a synagogue. Yes. I went to your uh, spiritual time of it. Yes. You mean Jewish scholars? Well, there's no question that in the golden age of Spanish Jewry, that that was not that was it wasn't like that was where all the Jews were. As I said, that was where it was the most prominent centre of Jewry, and it did allow for uh, you know great scholarship. Um, I don't know about I don't know much about Spain outside. Yeah. I don't know the answer. But I, but I guess, uh, yeah, look, Spain was a very prominent, strong country, a strong, strong group of countries. Okay, I want to get to the end, and there's still quite a lot more. Um, okay, so we're just talking about the Muslim countries at the moment. Uh, the trade of the Turks, so they got all the way to Turkey, where they were particularly prominent, the, the Muranos and then Jews that came with them. Um, it was the, the trade. It, there were a lot, many Muranos became Jews again, and they pretty much handled the, 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 the trade of the empire of the Ottoman Empire with Armenians and Greeks. I think the Turks liked to go out and fight, and if you wanted a trade, then you, it was good if you were a Jew. Um, the Jews were very respected. The chief rabbi of Istanbul, Constantinople, was even a, uh, was given a seat next to the Mufti himself. Um, Salonika, which is in Greece, was a very prominent example of a Murano community. Um, Jews lived there for 400 years until the community was destroyed by the Nazis in the war. Um, they made a living in fishing predominantly, which is also interesting what, like, what people do. Um, <laughs> it was known that among the non-Jews non that you couldn't buy fish on a Saturday. <coughs> the Jews, that was because they were so, they were so prominent in Jewish. And the custom of no boats going in and out of the harbors on a Shabbat, on a Saturday, remains in the non-Jewish community till very recently. So even when there were no more Jews there, they still didn't allow ships in the harbor on a Saturday. Okay, so now we show, uh, um, so, so back to the, the, the Ottoman Empire, at the, it's now the end of the 16th century, which is the 1500s. The Ottoman Empire is decaying, it hung on for a long time, but it wasn't powerful anymore. Um, and then what Naomi said in Northern Europe and Western Europe, other centers started to become more tolerant. So that's where they go next. A oh, quick interlude. Uh, this is great, actually. My whole talk was going to be about this at one point, but there wasn't, I couldn't find enough information. Okay, I'll tell you briefly. There was this Jew, all right? His name is Joseph Nassi. Have any of you heard of him? Okay. Uh, feel free to add to my very brief summary. Um, he was famous for a lot of things, but one thing he did is he tried to restore a Jewish center in Palestine, in historical Palestine. Now Jews at the time, most, most Jews, the idea was you don't 
think about a nation state in Palestine until such time as the Mashiach returns. It was a spiritual, religious uh, uh, reckoning, I suppose. This guy said that's not the right way to do it. But let me tell you a bit about his background. He was a great example of a Murano. So he was born Chwao Miguez. Chwao, Chwao, that's what the Chwao. Uh, he was descended from a family that had fled from Spain to Portugal in the expulsion. Uh, they forci were forcibly converted, I've explained that. Um, and his father did, his family did very well. Um, his father had become physician of the Portuguese king. Uh, his aunt married a wealthy Christian. And on her husband's death, the uncle's death, the aunt moved with other members of the family, including this young man, to the Netherlands. Right. But they were still Christians, okay? They were Portuguese Christians. But they were practicing in secret. Um, there in the Netherlands, the Queen of the Netherlands wanted the beautiful daughter of this aunt, Reina was her name, to marry one of the court's princes. Um, but the aunt replied she would rather see the maiden dead than marry that prince. Okay, but that was a bad move, right? Because you don't say no to the Queen. So they had to leave, and they went to Constantinople, which is now Istanbul. And there they realized that so Turkey was probably the most open place for a Murano to become a, a Jew again. They threw off the, off the disguise of Catholicism. Uh, Miquez marries Reina, who's his cousin. He gets the maiden. And uh, <laughs> he then called himself by his ancestral Hebraic name, Joseph Nasi. It's a great story, okay? But it doesn't end there, because he was an amazing success. He became one of the most influential persons in the Turkish Empire. His opinion was sought by every power in Europe. He, oh, it's amazing. I mean, he organized the Dutch revolt against the Spanish. I think a bit of revenge there to get to get back at those Spanish for all they've done. Um, he wrote Hebrew letters and he used diplomatic means to try save and protect Jews in far-flung lands. You know, that had nothing to do with them. He was an amazing guy. And you know, we just lose these names in history, but they're amazing people. Um, he declared war on Venice on behalf of the of the empire. He was made a duke. He had a huge palace outside Constantinople. I'm summarizing in the extreme because there's lots written about this guy. Not enough for an hour long talk, though, which is what, hap what happened to me. Uh, and no Jew in recent history at the time had attained such immense power. He became king of Cyprus before his death in 1579. You think that's the end of the story? No, it's not, because as I said, he wanted to establish a, st a Jewish state in the Holy Land, which is what he went about doing. So he didn't want to wait for the Messiah. He went over to Tiberias, which was this old Roman city in the north of Israel, in the north of, I don't know what it was called, uh, Palestine, I suppose. Um, it was in ruins, the city, and he attempted to build up a, build up a nucleus of a semi-autonomous Jewish state. He realized you couldn't rely on feelings to build the state, like everybody's just going to come because, you know, there's some spiritual feeling. You have to make it economically viable. And he realized that Jews across the Turkish Empire had been experts in textiles, and he brought a whole lot of Jews over to Tiberias. Mulberry trees were planted for breeding silkworms. Wool was imported from Spain. Uh, invitations were dispatched far and wide for artisans and craftsmen to settle in this new colony. But unfortunately, it didn't last. I think he was the, the classic example of one guy taking on the burden for everyone, but when he was no longer effectual, it collapsed. But it's an amazing story. Um, there's a museum of living in Russia, Russia, there's a museum in Tiberias on the name. And they, they got the land from the Sultan. They got like so-and-so land from the Sultan to see Jews, and that's the base of Jewish Tiberias, generally rebuilding the Jewish population in, in 
Yes. That's exactly my next paragraph. Rabbi, you are wealth of information. Uh, thank you. Sorry, I didn't know that. I contradict you a little bit. I don't want to upset. But no, I've contradicted you. Oh, really? Oh, so that's you're saying that's another man taking taking. Uh, <laughs> <He was> the, <laughs> of an island. She did everything. She was the power. The lady. Yeah, yeah. She did everything. Ladona, I've been to nine of her synagogues in, mm. in Smyrna. She did everything. She I'd, tried to rent, spot everything. Yeah. The man had fucked <laughs> <laughs> I, I, That doesn't surprise me so much, although I read, I read as much as I could find about this guy. And yeah, yeah. What you said is true, but it's his yeah. brother. Well, <laughs> well what's, what's more amazing... What's more Jewish than that? Yes. What's more Jewish than that? What's amazing is there's tons... I, I, I read a lot you know, from different sources about this chap because I, I wanted to make the talk just about him. But it was, and, and the mother was mentioned, but it's like, the oh, the mother. The mother was everything. <laughs> you go to Turkey and you ask, who is Ladona? And they all point to her. But He's a nebish. He was a little pisha who had a little island that he ran for the sultan. Okay, as I say, I, I definitely don't doubt you, um, but, they, but but I think the point is they were a Murano family who, who, who managed to get out of being Muranos, which was the ultimate, right? Not everybody did. Okay, so, uh, as I said, the rabbi's right, um, Sfat is right around the corner and it allows, uh, I think this this was just before that boom in Sfat, the spiritual boom, um, at the time of the expulsion, so 1490s. It contained a handful of Jews. A hundred year late, years later, there were 18 Talmudic colleges and 21 synagogues in wow. Sfat. Um, and I think it created a belief that I think the Zionists must have found it extremely inspiring uh, a few hundred years later that if you to get to to achieve self-determination, you've got to work hard and make it yourself. You're not going to get there because you're not. You can't wait. Yeah, no one's going to give it to you. And that obviously they they, they were the the key guys in the modern state of Israel. All right, no, they, I'm almost done. In Northern Europe, they did become more tolerant. Okay, so now we've talked about Palestine, Turkey, and North Africa. Now the Marauders also went to Northern Europe a bit later. Um, and what helped them in Europe was that actually, there's a lot of irony, uh, that the power, that the Spain and Portugal were the most powerful countries at the time. And, and in every single place in Europe, there was a Portuguese or a Spanish, I think probably Portuguese, trading colony, and they spoke Spanish or Portuguese, and you could integrate yourself quite quickly, but remember, that you weren't under the rule of the Spanish or Portuguese, but they needed guys who spoke Spanish and Portuguese, and maybe understood Spanish and Portuguese customs, so Jews did quite well. They were also skilled in trade, I think everywhere they went, these guys were involved in trade, and this is an amazing story, amazing anecdote, the terms Portuguese and Jew in Northern Europe, Northwestern Europe, were synonymous at the time, pretty much. If you talked about a Portuguese you, and a Jew, you were saying the same thing. How great is that? Um, they landed in Belgium, the Netherlands, London, Hamburg, and Italy, uh, mainly Venice. And soon after the first ghetto was established in Venice, ghetto is an Italian word, Venetian word, I suppose. Uh, they brought with them certain non-Jewish traits that they found uh, that found their way into the greater Jewish community. So the, so the great synagogue in Florence, I haven't been there, has anybody been there? Yeah. So it uh, resembles a church in terms of architecture. I suppose that also links to your question, like how many you, you, you felt, I mean, beautiful church, let's build a church, but it's actually for Jews, you know? Uh, sometimes they would build, uh, there's lots of historical synagogues, which are small little things, square buildings, where, you know, which weren't like churches from this time. Hello, Ariella. Um, all right, Catholic. Uh, 
Yes, I'm wrapping up. All right. Must I wrap up? We've got 10 minutes. Yes. Yeah, and were, did, were any of them from Murano families? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, no, but I think you are right, because I think they became all one sort of mishmash. Okay, I've got to wrap up. Um, so, um, in the Netherlands, they were prominent. Uh, and and most of the net, most of the Dutch Jews were originally Muranas. It wasn't always that way, but they were. It just was one of those places where they were mainly Muranas. They were develop, They were involved in the development of the canals of Amsterdam. The Dutch East, East India Company, the, the largest corporation of all time, was financed by Murano Jews. They were the patrons of the famous Dutch fine art masters. Rembrandt lived in the Jewish quarter. His neighbors were Jews, and many of his works are Jewish themed: the Jewish bride, Sabbath candles. Etc. Um, in France, uh, yes, I mean France, you could go on for hours. But basically, they they were Catholic and aligned to Spain, so you couldn't. That was a place where Moranos couldn't be openly Jewish, but they became so prominent and had such an impact on the rest of the French that within about a hundred years they could establish a Jewish community there. And the French said it's not worth the stress of having to deal with these fake Jews, these fake Catholics. Okay, um, great examples of Murano families who who. Great descendants of Murano families, Baruch Spinoza in Amsterdam, and David Ricardo, great economist. Professors, bankers, authors, everywhere they did excellently, and usually as Jews. Usually by this stage they become Jews again. I'm sorry I have to rush to finish. Long. Um, I will say this, in many sense they were the first modern Jews. The Muranos, um, oh this is a, oh, this is actually quite important. Okay, so. This is real the summary of this whole thing. Okay, so the, in Jewish life, the influence of Muranos was exceptional, and this is my reading of it. Okay, if you went to join existing settlements, you became part of that community. So you went to, to Venice, and there was a ghetto. You became a ghettoized Jew. That was your option. Okay, but if you founded a community independently, like in Amsterdam, is probably the best example. You were treated on your own merits. So you came in as a Catholic. You were secretly practicing as a Jew, and they said, "Great, we're happy to have you." You're going to be the grandfather of Spinoza. I mean, what more do you want? Um, they were accepted from the beginning as talented and useful foreigners. And later on, they couldn't be excluded. This was times of, of far more enlightenment. They couldn't be excluded later because they turned out to be Jews. It was much harder to exclude them later. So for most Northern Europeans, it seemed preposterous to create a ghetto in order to segregate those who were the leaders of the intellectual and commercial world of the day. So in many ways, the Muranos became the first modern Jews who were integrated into society in Western Europe. Following from the Muranos arrived Jews from other countries, mainly Ashkenazim, actually, which were from Germany originally, not Eastern Europe. Yeah, so they came... And uh, they automatically enjoyed, enjoyed the privileges that the Muranos had gained. So you were a wealthy, successful Jew. We're not giving you a hard time anymore, <coughs> even though you came here as a Catholic, pretend, uh, 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 pretending to be a Catholic and you were a Jew. You're great. And if you, a Jew who joined that community was generally given the same privileges. And obviously, guys, it's all relative. I mean, there was still anti-Semitism and there was still prejudice, but you were allowed to generally flourish as a Jew. Um, and across Europe, it was dotted with Jewish congregations, constantly increasing in numbers and prosperity. They were free from the insecurity and discrimination which Jews in, say, Eastern Europe were increasingly find, find like our, most of our 
Lithuanian forefathers were finding themselves. Um, quick other story in Brazil, South America, and most of Northern America that were Spanish, including, yeah, you know, I mean it was from New Amsterdam, which is a Dutch colony, to the south of, of the United States, to Mexico, Brazil. All of these were Spanish colonies, or uh, or perhaps uh, Dutch colonies, and they were they, they were riddled with Moranos. 20% of the European population, the, the non-indigenous population of Rio in the 17th century was Murano, 50% in some smaller towns in Brazil, in New Mexico when it became part of the United States, which was I think at the Mexican War, Mexican-United States War, the, these white Americans found Mexicans practicing Jewish customs, but again without mm -hmm. knowing it. And there's lots of stories in New Mexico, I think even today, yes. Yeah. yeah, so these guys came as Spanish explorers, or came with the Spanish explorers and settled. And, I'm, and they've got a lot of detail here, but not, I think you get the, get the point. There's a festival called Santa Esterica. It's, uh, it's, it's a South American festival, sorry, Mexican festival. Um, it was created as a substitute for Purim by Moranos. Uh, it's still celebrated today in some parts of the southwestern United States, and actually uh, all of Latin America. Um, so there's the saint called Estherica, who was very similar to Queen Esther, Estherica Esther. I mean, they didn't really hide, right? Uh, like Estherica, no one's going to know it's Esther. Uh, and during the festival, this is super interesting because it's very different to Purim. During this festival, women fast for three days as Esther herself did. I think we should take on that custom. But maybe we all fast. I mean, that's a much that's better than getting trapped, right? Um, yeah. So. In conclusion, so most Moranos most never left Spain and Portugal and they did assimilate. Obviously some carried, Ish was right to point out that some carried on practicing, maybe consciously or unconsciously. <clears throat> but most who left the peninsula and returned to Judaism made a mark impact wherever they landed. Um, and I think that Jewish history kind of forgets this. Um, without the, without Moranos, Western Europe certainly might never have been opened up to Jews. Um, some of the great discoveries of the Renaissance period wouldn't have taken place. European explorers, there were so many of these Moranos who went with the European explorers to the Americas. And in summary, in conclusion, although the term Murano swine originally had negative connotations, the perseverance and tenacity of the secret Jews has endowed the term with a unique romance, I think. Many of us sitting here today might even be descendants of Moranos, maybe without even knowing. Certainly if we came from Western Europe or from us historically Sephardi communities and we should be proud of the special part of our heritage. I don't think Jews were always so proud of Moranos we should be. And Jewish history as we understand it often leaves the Moranos out but we should not. Thank you very much. Yeah. I know we have to sum up but any last points or questions? Anything? Yes? Just quickly, Christopher Columbus fell in 1492. Yes. And the cartographer who made people on board ship were Jews, otherwise he wouldn't have found anything. Great job. <laughs> but, but, well, I, I think that's quite. I, I, in my in my previous talk, and I thought it would come up here. The, I think it's. I don't think he was a Jew. He wrote Baruch Hashem on every letter that he, he, he published. That's what he's a cartographer. Yeah, I'm not. I, I, I thought it would come up, so I checked it. It isn't really. It isn't. He probably wasn't Jewish, but maybe he was a bit Jewish. I don't know. We'll take it. Any other points? Uh, okay, we'll go. We'll go around. Yes. Just wanted just to point out the Portuguese.
No question, there were de definitely Muranos, and possibly even Jews. It's not, you know, that you said that you were a Jew. It was, there, there was a lot of overlap, but there were certainly Catholics practicing as Jews on all of these vessels, every single one. Yes. Yes, and remember I said it went on 300 years, so if you were a Spanish, you know, the Spanish in Brazil, but the capital of Spain was in Brazil at one point, they didn't see themselves as being Brazilians, you were a Spaniard and you carried on practicing the, the ways of Spain, yes, yes. Another thing, um, I don't know if you know, there was a Peruvian Inquisition and a Mexican Inquisition. Because just like the Nazis, the obsession was extreme. And a lot of Morano actually, Swami tended to go east, mm -hmm. but Morano went west. They went to South America and America in the hope of starting new, new colonies or, or practicing the religion of freedom. And that's why the Mexican and the Peruvians were so obsessed with still hunting down Jews. That's amazing. And, uh, that was an obsession, like we had in I've always wondered why in Latin America they allowed so many Nazis in. Maybe they had a different mindset in South America. Yes, sir. And just a brief, an, an interesting thing. I, I, I was shocked by the degree of pork in food in Spain, and I was actually chatting to people. Why is it? Why is it so pronounced? And one of the reasons that someone said to me is that it actually was a way of flushing out the Moranos. So they would put in every single dish they would put in pork, yes. so that you kind of, those people who took it out would, would they would know that they weren't, so, so that's why virtually, I mean, you know, as a vegan yeah. it was extremely difficult, and you, you actually just, uh, you know, that's why it's so pronounced, so it's interesting, like it actually has affected yeah. Spanish culture today and the cuisine and the food. Of course they don't know that the average Spaniard today doesn't know why he yeah. eats pork. Yeah. But they lost of somebody told me at the previous talk that they'd gone to a, 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 a church somewhere in uh, in the Americas where there was a hidden basement underneath the church which they still had sand because that's where they would go and quietly practice their Judaism, pray and, you know, and so on. But they, they nobody at the church understood that that's why the sand was there. But they kept the sandy floor, that kind of stuff, you know, today. They kept the sandy floor, but it was historically a Murano church. Any last points? Well, thanks everyone. Thanks for the contributions. Really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. I will be back. How's it, James? James, it's great to meet you.